Well, let me extend my welcome to our supporters and graduates who are here tonight. Thanks for making the journey up to Maru on a wet night. What we do on campus, day by day, week by week, as students and staff in partnership together, is only possible because of your support as supporters of the Graduates Fund, your prayer support, your financial support. So it's always wonderful to have at least some of our supporters and graduates out of the many hundreds who support the work of the staff on the campus here tonight at ANCON. And I trust that it will be an encouraging night for you too as you're here joining with us. Let's, lead, let's uh, pray together as we get underway. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for graciously building us as your church around him. And so we pray that tonight your word might live in us individually and corporately and bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week here at Annual Conference, we've been looking at the church, the church in all of its grit and its glory. We started our journey on Monday morning by looking at the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel. And we saw there that one of the great blessings that the old covenant people of God enjoyed was that God himself came among them and took up residence among them at the tabernacle, later at the temple. God manifested his awesome presence in their midst. But there was a problem with God dwelling amongst his people. Now, if you've got a booklet there, I'm on page 33. The problem. The problem was this. God dwelling among his people was not enough. It wasn't enough that God came and dwelt among his people in order to make them obedient. Even though God was graciously dwelling among them, they still would not keep his word. You can see it from uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, there on your page, verses 12 to 14. The Lord here is speaking during the exile. He says, Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forgotten my law that I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice or walked in accordance with it. But they have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their ancestors taught them. All the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. God's people had a heart problem and God's presence among them was not an adequate solution. But God was going to do about this heart problem, the heart problem of his people, as part of this new covenant that he was going to establish. You can see the promise there in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. And the Lord says, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave your ancestors and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Do you notice that God is promising not to just be amongst his people? God says he will be in his people by his spirit. And this will have the heart-softening transformation that his people need in order that they might seek after him and actually be his faithful people. And this pouring out of God's spirit into the hearts of his people, that is the great day for which God's people long, for which they're waiting. You can track it back all the way back to Moses in Numbers chapter 11 when he said, Oh, would that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
And yet that's what the Lord's promise is right here in Ezekiel, that he will put his spirit into the hearts of all of his people, that they would follow after him. He's going to live not among them. He's going to live in them. Now you need to get just how big a deal that was in the Old Testament, how big a promise that was, how such an amazing future to look forward to if you can make any sense of what happens at Pentecost in the book of Acts. If you don't get just how big a promise it was, then maybe the significance of Pentecost slips you by. Because when Pentecost comes, Pentecost was an annual Jewish festival, but its significance for us now is that it was during the annual Pentecost festival after Jesus' resurrection that God fulfilled this great promise from the Old Testament. That he he poured out his spirit. And significantly, the question is, on whom did he pour out his spirit? And the amazing answer is, he poured out his spirit on the followers of Jesus. The guy who, who was killed, executed just a little while ago. And these disciples have got the promised spirit? That's shockwaves right there, right there through the Israelite community. What is going on here? Listen then to Peter's words on that day from Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. A bit further on, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. The great moment where God himself will take up residence in his people by his spirit has arrived and it's arrived for all those who trusted in Jesus as the Christ. The result, page 34 on your book, forget the temple people, forget this great building in the middle of Jerusalem, forget this temple, use are the temple. Use of a temple. See, under the new covenant, the temple where God has taken up residence is not a physical building. It's the followers of Jesus. That's the new temple. It's us. We, the church of Jesus' people, we are the temple in which the one true living God dwells. He dwells in us corporately. He dwells in us individually. But Paul talks in both ways there on the two passages on your page. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you, and that's a plural you there, use, all of yous, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in yous? Okay, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. <laughs> but it's individually as well. So just a little bit later, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says of each believer, do you not know, do you not know that your body, this time he means your physical body, your flesh and blood, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God and that you are not your own. Now, this fact that God has taken up residence in us by His Spirit, that has very significant implications for how we're going to live. Particularly when it comes to understanding why and how we should live holy lives as God's holy people, His church. And we're going to explore that a bit more tomorrow night. But what I want to do now is is, is move on and think about what is God then doing as He takes up residence in His people, in us? together and individually? What's he doing? 
Well, we've already seen a little bit of what God's doing this afternoon. We saw that through his indwelling spirit, God gives gifts for service to every single believer, to every one of us. And he gives them to us, we learn, not primarily for our own edification, but for the common good, to build and serve up others. Okay. Now we're going to explore this a little bit more, and you can see there on your page Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 16. It's on page 34 of your book. Paul writes this. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And jump down to verse 11. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself in love. You know, it's the goal, the end to which God is at work. Why, why is, what is he doing at work in us? It's there in verse 13 until we reach unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. That's the end to which God is dwelling in us. How do we get there? Well, as the body of Christ, it's through building. Verse 16, the whole body promotes the body's growth in building itself in love. You probably noticed throughout the passage, I crossed out the words up and just left it building. Well, the word up isn't in the original. It's, it's just the word building, actually. And that's helpful, right? Because we don't just build the body upwards in greater and greater maturity. The body also grows outwards as more and more people become Christians and join the growing body of Christ. That's why one of the gifts that Christ gives there in verse 11 are evangelists. Because they work to grow the body outward, not upward. The key thing I want you to see here, though, is that though it's the whole body that promotes the body's growth. As each part is working properly. The growth of the body, both upwards in maturity, the growth of the body outwards in extent, is the responsibility of every member of the body. We each have our part to play to promote the growth of Christ's body. Each of us. Every one of us. How do we do that? What does it mean for you to be a working part, a working member of the body of Christ? Well, the answer is there in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love. We must grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So key to the body's growth is this speaking the truth in love. From earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, we know that the, the word of truth is the gospel. The truth which, through which the body grows is this truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. That's the truth that we speak to each other to help Christ's body grow. And to equip us for this ministry of speaking the truth to each other, Jesus has given some particular gifts. He's, they're equipping gifts, if you like. They're listed there in verse 11. There's apostles and there's prophets. There's evangelists, pastors and teachers. So the picture you get from this passage is that Jesus has gifted some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers who have particular gifts. Their task is to equip the body so that the body can grow itself upward and outward to full maturity in Christ through each member working properly, that is each member speaking the truth of the gospel in love to each other. That's how the church grows. 
Now, on page 35, you'll see two brief but significant reflections on this. First, do you hear out of that passage the necessity for the word if the body's to grow? What is the thing that will grow Jesus' church? The key to church growth is not advertising. Though if you read certain books on church growth, they will tell you that the church that really wants to grow should spend 40% of its budget on advertising. 40% on advertising. That gets your name out there, right? You want to grow? Advertising. It's just sense. There's whole marketing degrees that tell you that. But actually the key to church growth is not advertising. The key to church growth is not flash presentations. It's not awesome PowerPoint, as though anyone really ever thought that was going to do it. But actually, what's going to, the key to growing your church is not actually a fantastic welcoming program. The key to growing your church is not actually fantastic music. Real church growth that sees lost people saved and sees Jesus' body actually come to maturity in him, it comes through Jesus' word. Your advertising, your fancy lighting, your great videos, it may put more bums on seats. It might even mean that some people don't think you're as daggy as they first thought. But none of it is actually going to grow Jesus' church. Not really. Because real growth is through Jesus' word. And here's the strategy. Here's the church growth strategy straight from the New Testament. Every part of the body speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love to each other. That's how the body will grow. So in your conversations, as you chat after church in the car park, as you talk with somebody over supper, as you meet in Bible study, as you meet at an EU public meeting, or as you're here at Ancon, encourage each other with the word. Bring the truths of God to bear into one another's lives. Remind each other of the good news of God's gospel. Work out together how God's word is going to impact on the challenges and decisions that you're facing. Pray God's truths together. That's how Jesus plans to grow his church. Through you. Doing your bit. Speaking his truth in love to your sisters and brothers in Christ. What a crazy strategy for church growth. It might just work. Like too often, we just abdicate our part, actually. We leave it to the professionals, the people who are up the front. They're the ones who are to preach the word. Well, it's true, actually. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are all involved in this word ministry. They're all involved in teaching and training God's people in the truths of God's word. But according to Ephesians 4, the point of their ministry is to equip each of us to speak God's truth to each other. That's how the body grows. The body does not grow just from the front. The body of Christ grows organically, dynamically, as every member, you, do your bit and speak the truth of God in love. Now think about just here at Ancon for a moment, right? You have more opportunity this week to, to engage in a ministry of the word with others than I do this week with you. You have more opportunity with others than I get with you. Now, by God's grace, I get to speak for like six and a bit hours, which is crazy. 
You have more hours than that every day this week to speak the truth in love to people. Because if the growth of Christ's body here at Ancon is limited to just what's said from the front, well, under God, that might be a great blessing to people. But if we are all humbly and gently, lovingly seeking to speak the truth of God's word into one another's lives during the week, imagine what sort of growth might happen. Growth to maturity. Growth as some come to faith in Christ. So the second reflection I want to share with you is that the Word and the Spirit are inseparable. I'm not saying that the Word and Spirit are the same thing. God's Word and His Spirit are clearly distinct. They're distinct, yet they are intimately connected to each other. God's Word is the truth He speaks. His Spirit is the breath by which He speaks it. It's the power by which He speaks it. God's word, if you like, is the seed of truth spoken into our lives. His spirit is the empowering presence that makes that seed grow and bear fruit. So his word and spirit, they are distinct, but they always operate together. You can see it there in the passages on your page. Jesus' words in John 16, 13 to 15. The spirit of truth, he says, will not speak on his own, but will speak what he hears. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit declares the words of Jesus. Or Paul in Ephesians 6.17 talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that powerful sword through which the Spirit works is the Word. In fact, whenever we speak the Word of God, we do so in the power of the Spirit. So Peter, in 1 Peter 1.12, says, he speaks of those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The reason the Word and the Spirit are so inextricably linked actually goes back to God himself and his Trinitarian nature. So the New Testament tells us that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And in John's Gospel, the Son... God the Son is identified with the Word of God. So in His own being, God is Word and Spirit. We can distinguish between them, but they're inseparable because God is three in one. And the unity of the three in the being of God means that wherever one is working, the other persons are also present and active. Because you can't break God's into disjoint bits. Now, why am I emphasizing that the, God's Word and His Spirit always operate together? Well, it's because of the mistakes we so easily make. We can so focus on the Spirit that we forget that the sword that the Spirit is wielding is the Word of God. And other times we get so bored of the Word and hanker after a more dynamic working of the Spirit when actually the work of the Spirit that the work that the Spirit's been sent to do is to soften your heart to the Word and empower its proclamation to you and by you. So let's draw these threads together. What we enjoy now as the New Covenant Church that Jesus is building around Himself is the blessing of God's presence in us. He dwells in us by His Spirit and His Word both as individual followers of Jesus and also together as his new temple. And through his indwelling spirit and word, he's growing us upward and outward to maturity in Christ. Okay, so that's the overview of what God's doing in us. What I want to do for the next bit is to push down on these two aspects of God's work in us, the growing up and the growing out. So let's do that. First of all, growing up. Growing upward. The word dwelling in the church by the Spirit. 
Now, we've already talked a little bit about this this afternoon, actually, when we talked about how the Spirit gives each of us gifts with which we're to serve each other for the common good. We use the gifts he's given to grow the body, to grow it upward to maturity in Christ. What about the word, though? How does the word function here? Well, look at what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's speaking to a, a, a church, right? So he's not speaking just to an individual. He's speaking to a church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. I love the fact that Paul uses the adverb richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It means abundantly. Don't have the word dwell in you miserably and miserly. Have it dwell amongst you richly. Don't be a church, a community of Christ, where the word is barely hanging on where his word produces only the barest of fruits. Be the body of Christ where his word dwells richly, producing an abundance of choice fruit. In our garden at home, we have a few fruit trees. At the very back of the garden is a mandarin, a mandarin tree that for the last few years has produced next to nothing at all. We've lived there for four years, three and a half years, and it had not produced fruit. Uh, or actually, one year it did produce fruit. These tiny, tiny little sort of miniature mandarins that were incredibly, incredibly sour. This is not a rich mandarin tree. This is a measly and miserly mandarin tree. But then for reasons known only to God himself, this year it has produced Scores and scores, scores means 20, right? Scores and scores of beautiful mandarins. They are beautiful. So when my father sometimes comes over to our house, he takes home a whole branch. It is so laden with fruit, he just chops off the branch and walks out with it. <laughs> it is so laden with fruit. That's what Paul's talking about. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, in your church community, richly, abundantly. What will it look like to have the word of Christ dwell richly in us as his body? Well, three things just from that that little verse, actually. First, it's going to mean personal transformation. Personal transformation. If you read what Paul says immediately leading up to this verse, he talks about being transformed into the image of God through Christ who dwells in us. So he says, put off the old earthly self, put off anger, get rid of the anger, the slander, the sexual impurity, the evil desires, and put on the new self. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, patience. And above all, he says, clothe yourself with love. So see, part of having Jesus' word dwell richly in you is this personal transformation into the likeness of Jesus. That's what it means to have his word dwell richly in you. But second, it also means teaching and admonishing one another in love. That's what Paul says there, verse 16. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. The wisdom that Paul speaks of, I assume, is the wisdom that comes from the Word. As we speak God's Word to each other, as we both teach and admonish each other in love, we're encouraging His Word to dwell richly amongst us. Now, I think that this particular idea of teaching and admonishing each other is a real challenge for us. Basically, we are too fearful to speak God's word to each other. Particularly in an Australian context, we're too worried that we might be seen to be big-noting ourselves, putting ourselves up on some sort of pedestal, if we presume to say anything particularly directed to anyone. 
So, of course, there's the opposite danger. You know, we, we could be too quick to point out other people's failings and doing it not out of love but doing it out of pride and arrogance. We, that's a danger too. But I suspect more often we're concerned out of fear that maybe we'll be seen as too spiritual. We'll be seen as too pious, too full-on, too presumptive. Even if we're not, actually. Even if we want to do it well, we're just worried what people will think. So we say nothing. Do you think that's right? We're going to leave the teaching and admonishing to the people up the front. That's much safer for my self-image. Well, that's hardly selfless love, is it? In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. True love doesn't stay silent. Again, I'll, I'll quote from Bonhoeffer on this. He says this, he says, we speak to one another on the basis of the help we both need. We admonish one another to go the way that Christ bids us to go. We warn one another against the disobedience that is our common destruction. Why should we be afraid of one another? Since both of us have only God to fear. Why should we think that our brother would not understand us when we understood very well what was meant when someone spoke God's comfort or God's admonition to us, perhaps in words that were haltering and unskilled? Or do we really think there is a single person in this world who does not need either encouragement or admonition? Why then has God bestowed Christian fellowship upon us. If we want to see Christ's body grow, if we want to have his word dwell richly in us, it will mean lovingly teaching and admonishing each other as we speak the truth in love. Well, finally, the word dwells richly in us in our heartfelt response that we make to God together. So I'm still there in Colossians. As Paul says there at the end of verse 16, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. When Christ's word dwells richly in us, it generates heartfelt thanks. Heartfelt thanks that then erupts in spirit-empowered praise. But the spirit-empowered praise is generated by the word of Christ. Our spiritual songs, if they're going to be truly of the spirit, will reflect the words, the word, the generating word of Christ that's dwelling richly in us. You've got to remember again, Paul's here thinking about their actual gatherings as Jesus' church. He's not speaking in the abstract. The picture Paul draws for us is that when Jesus' church comes together, Jesus and his word is the central focus. It's his word that we're to have richly dwell in us as we gather as his church. His word with which we teach and admonish each other. His word that generates our heartfelt thanks and our spirit-inspired praise. When we come together as Jesus' church, we come together to meet with him in his word and in the presence of his spirit. So is Jesus and his word central in your gatherings as his people? Is it really central? Is, is Jesus and his word central when you gather on a Sunday? See, we can get this wrong so very easily, can't we? If someone came along to your church this Sunday, who or what would they say is central from their observation of what's going on? Is, the, is it the person up the front who's the centre? 
Is it the experience of worship that's the center? Would they say the Bible is central in this group without having some sort of sense that the reason the Bible is central is because it's Jesus' word? Would they say it seems that the Spirit is central? Would they say it seems that the Eucharist is central, the ritual? Would they say it seems that coffee afterwards or supper was the central thing they're all excited about? See, none of those things are actually bad in themselves, but if Jesus is not central to our actual meeting together, in whose name are we gathering? Whose body are we? Because we're Jesus' body. He's the head. He rules over us and is present with us by his word and his spirit. And so we want his word to dwell richly in us by his spirit as we meet together. So this leaves us with an important question. If we're going to seek to have the word of Christ dwell richly in us. But why don't you stand up for 30 seconds and stretch your legs before we get to it. Okay. You're looking at me. Matt, look at me. Matt, look at me. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Let's take a seat. On we go. Okay, so this leaves us with an important question. Because we want to have the Word of Christ dwell in us richly... How do we access the Word of Jesus? How do we access the Word of Jesus? Well, the answer is only through the authoritative testimony of the apostles and prophets, which is captured for us in the Scriptures. Let's play this out a bit. Uh, You can see the critical role of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets in Paul's comment in Ephesians 2. It's there on your page. Ephesians 2, 19-20. You are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The church is built on this foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now that fits exactly with what Jesus said about the apostles, that they, would be his, they are to be his hand-picked eyewitnesses. So Acts 1.8, speaking with the apostles, Jesus says, You, this particular group of people, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The apostles were to be Jesus' authoritative eyewitnesses to the very end of the earth. Now that raises a little bit of a question, doesn't it? What apostle made it to Maru? What apostle made it to Australia? Did they fail? Hashtag, epic fail. (laughs) I'm sorry if you're not Gen Y, you don't get that joke, do you? Oh, well. (laughs) 
How did the apostles carry out this massive task to take the authoritative testimony of Jesus to the very ends of the earth? Okay, well, you can see actually when you read carefully through the New Testament, they carried out their, t- their ministry in a variety of ways. You've got four dot points there. You might like to fill them in. First of all, they visited churches. That was what they did. They visited churches. So, for example, Paul visited the Corinthian church at least three times, according to 2 Corinthians 13.1. So they visited churches to pass on their authoritative testimony. Second, they wrote letters which were sometimes intended to be passed around between churches. So, for instance, in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, after you've read this letter, make sure that you swap letters with the letter I wrote to the church at Laodicea. Swap the letters over, right? So they wrote letters to get their authoritative testimony out there. Third thing, they sent apostolic delegates, apostolic delegates to different congregations or areas to pass on their teaching. So, again, 1 Corinthians 4.17 Timothy was to remind the Corinthians of everything that Paul lived and taught. So he was went as an apostolic delegate. Fourth thing, they appointed elders for each congregation. You can see this one there on your page, what the elders were meant to do. So Paul writes to Titus, who's one of his delegates, Titus 1.5, I left you behind in Crete for this reason so that you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So you notice what the elders' task was? The elders' task was to faithfully teach the word as it has been passed down from the apostles. The authoritative teaching and testimony of the apostles is key. And the reason that their testimony is key is because fellowship with Jesus is only through the apostles. Listen to how the apostle John begins his first letter. This is 1 John 1, 1-3. We declare to you what was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So I've tried to capture it there in the diagram, what John is saying. Jesus, the eternal word of life, was revealed to them, that is the apostles, not to us. But they pass on that revelation in their apostolic declaration, their authoritative testimony. And then in a similar way, we... By having the same faith in the same Jesus, get to share in their fellowship with the Father and His Son. So apart from the apostles, there is no authoritative testimony about Jesus. And apart from fellowship with those apostles, sharing their faith in this Jesus, there's no fellowship with Jesus or His Father. Now, I'm not saying the apostles are mediators between us and Jesus. There's only one mediator, and that's Jesus himself. What I'm saying is that the only true faith in Jesus is sharing the apostles' faith. If you don't share in the acceptance of their teaching, then we don't share in fellowship with Jesus. If you wander away from their teaching and try to establish establish fellowship with Jesus on some other basis... It's like you're a brick in a building with no foundation. You're cut off from Christ, the cornerstone. Because the only true sharing in Jesus is shared in common with the apostles on the basis of their apostolic testimony. We can't access Jesus bypassing the apostles' testimony about him. We are the church 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, for us today, that authoritative apostolic teaching is captured in the New Testament Scriptures. We don't have access to the apostolic testimony apart from these documents. So, fidelity to the apostles' teaching and testimony is seen in fidelity to their written testimony captured in the New Testament Scriptures. And it's worth noting that one of the very first descriptions of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, tells us that straight after Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the new church, amongst other things, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If we're going to be true to what God is doing in us, if we want Him to be growing us to maturity in His Son, then we're going to need to do the same thing. We're going to need to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, which we find in Scripture. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, makes the same point, page 37. I was going to say a bit about the sacraments, but you'll have to ask me a question time tomorrow night, it looks like. Martin Luther said that the church's commitment to this word of truth is absolutely essential. He says there, For since the church owes its birth to the word, is nourished, aided and strengthened by it, it is obvious that it cannot be without the word. If the church is without the word, then it ceases to be the church. Apostle Paul describes our relationship to the truth in more terms, sort of almost engineering-like. So from 1 Timothy 3.14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bullock, the bulwark. Do I say that or is that American? Help me out. Bullock? Like, like a bullock. Like a bullock. Thank you. The pillar and the bullock of the truth. Now, you know what a pillar is, right? A pillar holds something up. The church supports the truth. It, it holds it up to the world. That's what the church does. That's what it ought to do. But a bullock is a defensive wall. The bullock on a boat are the sides of the boat that extend above the deck. They hold the sea at bay. It's a defensive wall. The church defends the truth. We do both these things by our speech, but also by the way we live. We don't just proclaim the truth, we live it. So notice Paul says there in verse 15 that he writes, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We hold up and defend the word of truth by the way we live as well as what we proclaim. Now if you've been following what I've been saying, then you might have picked up by now that this commitment to the word of truth is something to which we all must be committed. It's not just the passional responsibility of those in leadership. However, there is a particular responsibility placed on those in leadership of God's people. In line with what we saw back in Ephesians 4, right? Where some are given by Jesus to be evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the ministry of speaking the truth in love. I'm going to leave you with those passages that I've pulled out of uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy there, so you can read those later. If you read through them, you can see what Paul says to Timothy and you'll get a bit of a feel for how significant is the responsibility on those who are entrusted with the privilege of leadership to ensure that the truth is held up, that the truth is defended, that the truth is lived by the church. Now, I've been talking a lot about growing up, but the church also grows out as it proclaims the word to the world in the power of the Spirit. So I'm now on page 38. Growing outward. 
the word proclaimed by the church in the Spirit. First thing to note is that mission is in the DNA of God's church. You can see how Oliver O'Donovan put it there in your notes. He says, the church is a gathering community. It continually adds to its membership from all existing political and natural communities as the recognition of Jesus as the Christ is communicated throughout the world. It can exist only as a community that is always gathering, anticipating the final state in which mankind as totality will gladly be subject to the rule of God. In its very nature as being the church, the gathering, in our DNA, we are gathering people from every tribe and nation and urban subculture around the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, we are to be a royal priesthood that we might declare to the world the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Why do we proclaim the mighty acts of God who saved us? We do it first to give him the praise that he's due. But we also do it to call others to the salvation that we've graciously received from his hand. And of course, at the heart of mission is the word. It's the word of the gospel that gives people spiritual birth, isn't it? You can read it there in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. And in fact, as you read through the book of Acts, and I've put the passages there on your page, the expansion of the church is not just described as a growing number of disciples, it's the growth of the church is described in terms of the advancing and prevailing Word of God. It's as though the Word of God were a, a physical force spreading over larger and larger territory. That's how the church growth is described, the, pre, the advancing and prevailing Word of God. And, and it is a force, actually. It's the force of God's Spirit. Capturing yet another soul for the Lord Jesus. Go over to the next page. Uh, jump down to point D. Because there's something on um, our proclamation of God's Word that I'd like to highlight. Our proclamation of this Word, this Word that brings life, is not merely vocal. Or rather, we proclaim the Word through our words... And the power of God's word is proclaimed through the church's life. Now, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis put it like this. By her life, created and shaped by the gospel, the church reveals the nature of the inbreaking rule of God. By that gospel life and gospel proclamation, she calls the nations to worship God. Evangelism, they say, is best done out of the context of a gospel community whose corporate life demonstrates the reality of the word that gave her life. We live God's transforming truth as we proclaim it to others. Uh, Leslie Newbigin, who is a, a great Christian missiologist, described the church as the hermeneutic of the gospel, which really is beautiful if you know what the word hermeneutic means. <laughs> he means it's the means by which we understand and grasp the gospel. The means by which you interpret and understand the gospel when you see it lived and proclaimed by God's church. In fact, it's as we live it out, that gives credibility, doesn't it, to our message. We're not just speaking words. We're speaking transforming words. And you can see the power of God at work through them in our own lives, in our life together. And at this point, the beautiful way 
that growing upwards to maturity in Christ, that is a beautiful partner to our desire to grow outward in evangelism, isn't it? In no way do these two things compete against each other. Well, they ought not. Because as we, as the church, grow upwards to maturity in greater and greater Christ-likeness, we actually are strengthening the proclamation of this message about Jesus. The gospel we proclaim with our lips is adorned by the gospel-shaped life that we live in community together. And finally, this great task of proclamation is not beyond us as Jesus' church, since it is the indwelling spirit that empowers the church to proclaim. Listen to the prayer of the early church in Acts 4, 29-31. They were facing very significant opposition at this point. And this is their prayer. And now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And Luke records for us, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. You see, growing the church, both upward and outward, that's God's concern. That is what he is doing in us by his word and spirit, growing the church upward and outward to maturity. It's his concern. It's his agenda. He wants to see it happen. And and by his grace, he has graciously involved us in the very task of doing it. And he equips us for this task with his indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit that we might grow up together and grow out. So pray for boldness. Pray for boldness from his indwelling spirit to proclaim the word of Christ to those who need to hear it. So let me wrap it up. God has come among us. In fact, no, he's come within us by his word and spirit. He's come in us to build us as the dwelling place for his spirit. Build us together. And we're built on this foundation of the, the, the apostles and the prophets through whom we've received God's word, which grows us up and out. But friends, it will only happen, it will only happen as each part does its work. And it will only happen as his word dwells in us richly. And it will only happen as the Spirit grants us boldness to speak. So will you play your part? Will you speak the truth in love to those around you? Will we seek together to have the Word of Christ dwell in us richly and make it the center? Will you pray that as an EU... As churches, we would have great boldness from his indwelling spirit to proclaim Jesus' life-giving word, to see more people saved and to see the kingdom grow. So let's pray about those things. Gracious Father, we praise and thank you for your great plan to come within us as your Holy Spirit, to make us and build us into your holy temple, that we might be your people, you might be our God, dwelling within us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by the power of your Spirit, you would equip us to play our part in the growth of your body. 
Help us to have courage to speak your truth to one another in love. Fill us with boldness to proclaim your life-giving word to those who are lost. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, in the power of your spirit, and for your kingdom and glory. With great thanks. Amen.